The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Everyday Wealth. So those of you who are listening today know maybe all too well that we are about to enter into one of the most hectic times of the year, the holiday season. This year, it's going to be a little different because it's really the first or maybe the second, depending on how brave you are, holiday season since 2020, where we have fully emerged from the shadow of COVID. And that means for the first time in a very long time, we may see holiday gatherings with two or three or even four generations of family under one roof. I was thinking about this and it, it reminded me of a story of It's kind of a parable. It's related to our topic today. So picture this. There is a large house. Multiple generations have gathered for a holiday meal. And in the kitchen, a young boy is watching his mom prepare the roast for the holiday dinner. And he notices that she cuts an inch off of each end before putting it into the roasting pan. And he asks his mom, hey, why do you do that? Why do you cut an inch off each side of the roast before you put it into the pan? And she says, well, sweetheart, that's the way my mother did it. So the little boy goes out into the living room where his grandma's sitting on the couch and he says, grandma, Mom says she cuts an inch off the end of the roast each end before she puts it into the pan because that's the way you used to do it. Why do you do that? And his grandmother smiles and she says, well, sweetheart, that's the way my mom used to do it. So this boy, who, by the way, quite dogged, goes out onto the porch where his great grandma is sitting and he says to her, Great grandma, I asked mom and I asked grandma why they cut an inch off each side of the roast before they put it in the pan. And they said, because that's the way you did it. So why'd you do that? And his great grandmother smiles and said, well, when your great grandfather and I were first married, I didn't have a pan big enough to fit the roast. And what I love about this story is that it illustrates a kind of universal truth. We all have certain things in our lives that are on autopilot, things that we don't question, things that we just do because that's the way we've done it or that's the way 
our parents did it or our grandparents did it. I always put a parsnip in the chicken soup, even though I'm telling you, I cannot taste the parsnip because that's the way my mother did it. And this happens all the time when it comes to financial planning and in particular when it comes to estate planning. For example, let's say someone creates an estate plan. It's an actual plan, a highly detailed and complex plan for how to pass on wealth, who it goes to, and who will be in charge of administering the estate. But then they never talk about it. They never discuss this plan with their kids when they're alive. Why? Because their parents never discussed their plans with them. So in this scenario, the first time the children, adults, may even learn about an estate plan is when someone dies and they get a call out of the blue from an advisor who is likely a stranger. It happens all the time. And even when it's not a learned behavior, like the pot roast, a repeated behavior, it's not easy to talk about these kinds of issues. It's actually easier to avoid them. It is common to simply avoid them because they're uncomfortable. But if you can get yourself to dig in, if you can get yourself to engage, you can help avoid some costly and sometimes really bitter family disputes after you're gone. That's what we're going to talk about today, including some tips on how you can get these kinds of conversations started. My friend Andy Smith is here with me today. He's a wealth planner at Edelman Financial Engines. Good to see you, Andy. Great to see you. So this is a particularly timely topic right now, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, we're kind of getting into the holidays, and so people are thinking about, you know, getting together. It's not like, oh, it's the holidays. I'm thinking about dying. Let me tell my kids uh, what my plans are. (laughs) It's just, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, we're going to see crazy Uncle Frank or, you know, hopefully, you know, Grandma Margaret shows up and all these things. But this is kind of the first time in, I don't know, a couple of years where you have multiple generations all under the same roof. They're coming together. So, yeah, I mean, this is... This is kind of on people's minds because it might be something that comes up, maybe not right at the beginning when people are walking in the door, but it's not uncommon to have these conversations and to hear about these conversations, you know, in my chair, you know, as the holidays go on. I do not have a crazy Uncle Frank. I do have a crazy Uncle Bernie. Um, And I'm sure he would be very excited to dig into this kind of a conversation. But do you think the holidays are an ideal time to have these sorts of talks? And, And actually, before we even dig into that, can you just give me your take on estate planning in general? Uh, yes. So at Edelman Financial Engines, we believe that everybody deserves some sort of estate plan. Uh, it doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your marital status, your net worth, how much you have, how much you don't have, number of marriages that you're on, whether or not you have kids, <laughs> you need some sort of estate plan. And so most of the time, I would say that an estate plan is going to consist of three elements. You've got your last will and testament, but that Mm -hmm. also is going to kind of a sidebar on that is you got to make sure that all of your beneficiary designations are coordinated between all the different accounts. All right. So that's important, right? Because because the beneficiary designations override the will. Yeah. So they kind of just know where all the different things are. But that last will and testament, it's like a set of instructions 
that guide a lot of other things. So to get the last will and testament, you have your durable power of attorney, and then you have a healthcare power of attorney. Typically, those three things, last will and testament, your durable power of attorney, your healthcare power of attorney, that works as the bigger pieces of any estate plan. Now, somebody would raise their hand and say, what about a living will? What about trusts? What about all these other things? Yes, yes, yes. However, those three items are what we see most of the time and how we talk with clients most of the time when we're talking estate planning. So you talk about estate planning. Do you actually do estate planning at Edelman Financial Engines? We do not write the actual estate plans. So think of us kind of as the central contact or driver a lot of times between the attorney, the CPA, the family, your money, your different accounts. A lot of times I will explain to clients or have them think about me being kind of an idea generator. You know, you've got this financial plan that we talk about and we build and we update, but those discussions in our meetings often drive a lot of what people are thinking about when it comes to estate planning or tax planning or how to talk with kids and how to kind of think about things from a family perspective. A lot of times I help clients get organized. So I end up being kind of a collector or provide a collection point for a lot of different and disparate electronic documents, you know, for the family so that when we lose mom and dad or when we lose grandma and grandpa, the kids aren't trying to look all over to figure out where all these different documents are. They've told them, call Andy, he has everything, and then I'm able to kind of, you know, shepherd them through the process from there. So your mission control, basically. Like That's when we have Houston, it, we yeah. have a problem, we call Andy. Yes, I'm the dapper gentleman in the white vest smoking constantly <laughs> as I'm solving everybody else's problems. But, uh, you know, it's it's complicated, right? And so just kind of talking about it and hearing all of this come about, again, think of your estate plan as kind of this letter of instruction for the family after you're gone. But sometimes people are worried that, oh, my gosh, how do I talk about it? Do I talk about it? You know, when? All these different things. The idea I want you to remember is this. If your kids are seeing your estate plan for the very first time after you're dead, there's going to be a lot of unanswerable questions and you're not going to be there to be able to clarify anything. Why do people get into that situation and and what kind of problems? Because look, a lot of people are avoiders. And if we're thinking about Thanksgiving or we're thinking about a holiday dinner, right? You're gathering all your, your, your peeps, your family, your kids. You don't want to rock the boat with what might turn out to be a discussion that, you know, it's, it's like not talking politics at the holiday table, right? You're, you don't want to get into something that is going to set people on edge at the holidays because that is the antithesis of what you're trying to do. Absolutely. So, and I'll, I'll share a couple of ideas about how to talk about it without talking about it or kind of to make me or whoever your financial planner is the bad guy. Um, with all of this. But you talk about, you know, why don't people like to think about this or talk about this? Well, I mean, death and grief can make people crazy sometimes. I mean, it can seriously affect people's or families' emotional balance and how they kind of think about themselves in the grand scheme of things, how they think about themselves as a family member. What I find sometimes when, when you talk about these problems 
is that parents sometimes build these plans and they sound great in their own head, right? But once we lose mom and dad and the kids start working through these plans, they realize that they have just this giant dumpster fire on their hands that now they can't talk to anybody because mom and dad are gone. So the family realizes after the fact how inoperable sometimes these plans are. And then sometimes we see the attorneys writing these plans and they never really interacted with the family at all. And they don't have to, right? The, the client is the person creating the estate plan. But this is not something that you want to operate in a vacuum. You want to be able to talk and think and get mad and yell and ask questions and all these other things. You have to be able to start this discussion somewhere. So you promised tips. Let's say we've <laughs> yeah. decided, we've yeah. decided we're going to do this, right? We're yeah. going to, we're going to dive in. Maybe we do it at the holidays. Maybe we do it the day after the holidays so that everybody can actually enjoy dinner. How do you start? Uh, I would start with the basics. You want people to know where your estate plans are or documents are. You want people to know who you have named in the documents. All right. So where's my stuff? You're letting people know who is involved. And then from there, you can talk the what's or the why's or whatever else you feel is appropriate about this estate plan. What I encourage people to do is give your family a chance to talk and ask questions. Like I said, get emotional, get mad, be happy, but then give them time to go away, think about things, and then come back you have to realize that any sort of estate plan discussion is a process. So this isn't Mm a, you know, between the turkey and the pie. Hey, by the way, I'm dying in three months. Here's my estate plan. Ricky, you're the, you know, you're the, you're the trustee. All right. Who wants pie? So where's the stuff? Who is named? You can go as much as you want into that, but give yourself time to process these conversations. When you're making the decision to reveal a lot or reveal a little about the details or about the thought process behind the details, is there an argument for revealing less versus more? Um, I would say the argument would be reveal as much as you're comfortable revealing. Sometimes parents are reluctant to share a lot or to reveal a lot uh, about how much they have or how much they're leaving their children because they're worried about disincentivizing the kids. They're worried that it's going to cause them to be less of a functioning member of society. It may create a sense of entitlement to the kids. You know your family best. So you talk about what you're comfortable with. I've been doing this a really long time and I've had lots of different estate planning conversations with people before the fact and during the fact and after the fact, everybody shares a different amount. What I would say is, if you want to talk, but you are worried about the specifics, speak in generalities, right? Map out in broad strokes kind of what you're wanting to accomplish. You don't have to name specific numbers, but remember, this is just a set of instructions. People need to fall in behind this. You're just doing them the courtesy of letting them know what's there so they're not blindsided once you're gone. And I think sometimes your kids will surprise you. I mean, I I know sometimes there can be tension around even the discussion of who's the executor, who's the proxy, right? Who's got power of attorney? I had this discussion with my kids when I was redoing my estate plan about 
durable power of attorney, about healthcare proxy. And specifically to the latter, my daughter said, I don't want that. Like, I don't want to be the one handling that decision about whether you should come off life support. I I don't want that. So, you know, very easy to name my son in that case because, you know, after my husband, right? But very easy to make that decision because she basically told me what to do. And right. and sometimes if we shy away from these discussions, I think we miss those important nuances and facts. Yes. Try to think of the estate planning conversation as a discussion, not as a speech. You're not just kind of telling people, this is what's happening. You're giving them the ability to have the reaction just like your kids did. But if you don't do that, then basically all of a sudden something happens to you. People just have to deal with it because it is this set of instructions that nobody had a chance to talk to beforehand. Sometimes people just can't get themselves to do it. They can't get themselves to the table. And my reaction in that case is always you need an impartial third party. You, You need a financial advisor in the mix or an estate planning attorney in the mix to help. Right. And this is where I come in as that interested, concerned, knowledgeable, but yet distanced part of this conversation. And I can kind of be the bad guy in a nice way and say, look, I have asked for a meeting with the parents, with the children and myself. So I can be the reason to meet. I can be the voice of the meeting. I can say the things that maybe you're not comfortable saying but they're still your words. I'm just kind of massaging the message so that the kids still hear it. And then you're still able to have that conversation with me in the room. I'm breaking the ice and then we can move the conversation forward. And it's nice to have everybody in the room, but we don't all have to be in the room, right? It's okay to be on Zoom or on Teams or on whatever platform you happen to like. Absolutely. You don't have to be in the same room. I want to make a very important note. Even if you are talking with family and you are talking about your estate plan, this is still your plan, right? I am still your planner. I'm not just going to blab everything to the kids. I'm not just going to, you know, open up the estate plan and tell them everything that's there. And then the family can't come back and ask me to share everything. Now, if you've given them the ability to know that, then that's fine. But it's not like you're having this conversation and then you think, oh my gosh, Will they know everything? No, you are letting the family know exactly what you want them to know at each and every step of this process. Is that part of, I mean, I hear you talk about the fiduciary relationship a lot. Is that part of being a fiduciary? You're my fiduciary. That's correct. I am duty bound to do what is in your best interests. And so that covers a wide range of things, right? What am I investing in? How am I allocating? What am I doing for retirement income or all of these different things? Now, I can be different people's fiduciaries and I am duty bound to do what is in each of their best interests. But again, when it comes to your estate plan, you kind of bringing the family into the tent and having you know the, the beginnings of these conversations please don't worry. It's not like your planner is just going to share with them everything based on whatever they think needs to be told. 
This is all great stuff, as we mentioned, really, really timely for the season. But Andy, we're not done with you yet. When we come back after the break, we are going to dig into our digital mailbag. We're going to have you answer a couple of listener questions if you're up for it. Yes? Absolutely. All right. We'll get to it right after the break. Stick with us. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second-guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. And we are back with Andy Smith. He's a wealth planner at Edelman Financial Engines. We've been talking about how to talk to your adult children about your estate plan, how to have that difficult conversation with your family, how a financial planner can help with that. Now we're going to shift gears a bit, answer a couple of listener questions. And by the way, if you've got a question, go to everydaywealth.com, scroll down to the box that says, ask the host. I'm the host. Type in your question, send it our way. And uh, here we go. Now, this one actually, Andy, is related to our estate planning discussion. John writes, as grandparents of two grandchildren with autism out of 10 total, we are concerned about investments for special needs children that, number one, won't disqualify them from federal programs, and number two, can provide care after they become adults. We currently have 529s for all 10, but they may not be the best choices for the two who have special needs. Any insights would be appreciated. What do you think? Uh, there's a lot going on there. So remember, I'm not an attorney. We have dealt with similar issues um, for clients in different situations. So I'm going to speak kind of in broader brushstrokes as it relates to kind of what's there. But there's two kinds of special needs trusts, all right? There's a third-party trust, and this type of trust is funded with parents' money. It is solely for the child's need. It will never be in the child's name, all right? So after the parents pass away, the funds are going to go to somebody else besides the child, but those funds still are for that child. It's just somebody else that's managing things for them. That's a third-party trust. There's a first-party trust, and the first-party trust is created with the individual's own assets to shelter income, whether it's earned or inherited, in order not to exceed these Medicaid income and asset limits that he was kind of uh, you know, referring to. Distributions have to be approved by the trustee. Uh, any funds that remain after the individual's death may be claimed by Medicaid if the person was a recipient. You got to remember that special needs trusts can't be used for certain basic expenses that are covered by government programs. So groceries, covered by SNAP, 
Uh, you've got medical expenses covered by Medicaid, and then you have housing expenses that are covered by SSI. So there's this thing out there called an ABLE account. An ABLE account is defined as a tax-advantaged savings account that can fund disability expenses. That can be used for a broad range of, quote-unquote, qualified disability expenses. That generally refers to expenditures that aid the individual in maintaining or improving his or her health, independence, or quality of life which is kind of the, the issue at, at hand here. It can yeah. also cover anything for the individual's benefit, such as you got computers, phones, education, training, financial management, support services, assistive technologies. There's all this stuff. So when you think about things, I would encourage you to talk with your attorney. I would encourage you to talk with your planner about these ABLE accounts to figure out how they're going to fit inside your particular plan because you got a lot of moving parts. You got 10 grandkids, you've got kids, you've got your own estate plan, you've got your own stuff. There's a lot of different things that are out there. What makes sense for one person may be the third-party trust. What makes sense for another may be the first-party trust. What makes sense for another may be the ABLE sorts of accounts. You have to be able to look at these as a tool for individuals with disabilities to be able to manage their funds. So talk with your planner, talk with your attorney, get into those ABLE accounts. That is probably going to be the key that's going to unlock some of these doors for you. And as I understand it, an ABLE account is a form of a 529. Yeah. And remember, I mean, you can contribute to these ABLE accounts. You can contribute in, you know, 16 grand, 17 grand per year, but the majority of parents leave more than that in the inheritance. So Mm -hmm. they need these different vehicles to be able to manage what's there. So again, it goes back to, you know, everything that it pays for. I mean, computers, phone, education, training, financial management, food, basic housing expenses, assistive technology. I mean, This is like the aquarium that you're putting stuff into so that you can pull things out as you need for the children as they move forward. Okay. Next question. And thank you, Andy, for that. That was really, really helpful. This is from Kevin, and he's asking about contributing to a 401k. He says, I love your show. Thank you, Kevin. We love doing it. He's 53, has a 401k with a low match of 4%, but he puts in 12%. And he says, I'm very confused on something. Everyone says to max out the 401k, but because my match is so low, should I just contribute to the match of 4% and take the other 8% and put it into my own taxable IRA, which offers me much better investment choices? Uh, Good question. Yeah, good question, Kevin. Thanks for the kind words uh, about the show. Kev, I would not make this more complicated than it needs to be. Your job is to save as much as you can for as long as you can. So I would have you consider focusing on the 401k first. Free money is great, right, from the employer match, but don't confine yourself to whatever that employer match is and think that you have to go elsewhere because you're only getting something from the employer, right? Don't let the match be the fence for your overall savings. Your job is to save as much as you can for as long as you can, plow the money into the 401k, you get the match, great. You know, the 401k, they give you different diversification options. They give you different investment options. Chances are you've got access to large cap index, mid cap index, small cap index, international. 
you got some bonds, you got stable value, you got all these different tools. Don't get too wound up. Don't make this more complicated than it needs to be. Save as much as you can. Don't let the employer match be the fence for your money. So he mentioned in the, at the end of his letter that going outside would give him better investment choices. But what I hear you saying is that even though his 401k has maybe a limited menu, it likely has the basics that he needs. Has the basics that he needs. And remember, 401k treasury boards are duty bound as well to provide appropriate choices to these people, these participants inside the 401k. I mean, they're not getting you some bonkers fund, you know, from Crazy Mickey's <laughs> laundromat and sun tanning, you know, salon. I mean, it's, it's, these are index funds. They're cheap, they're deep, they're broad. You build the right allocation. You look at that. When you talk about managing your own money, some people have the time and the temperament and the talent to do it on their own. So if you've got that time and you have different algorithms and you have different kind of sort mechanisms that you use to determine what is, quote unquote, a better investment choice, knock yourself out. But for the majority of people out there, do not make this as complicated as you think it could be. Save as much as you can. Plow it into the 401k. Don't let the employer match be the fence for your longer term savings. Thank you, Andy. And thanks for sticking around for extra innings today. Sure thing. And just as a general reminder, if you've got any questions about estate planning or financial planning in general, you can give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call at 833-PLAN-EFE. You can talk to a wealth planner just like Andy, and they can help make sure you've got the right plan in place to help reach your goals. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Carl Pilmer to the show. Dr. Pilmer is one of America's leading family sociologists and researchers on aging. He, he is a professor of human development at Cornell and a professor of gerontology and medicine at the Wild Cornell Medical College. He's also the founder of the Cornell Estrangement and Reconciliation Project. They're responsible for the study we actually spoke about in one of our previous episodes entitled Broken Ties, the impact of family estrangement on estate planning. You can check that out in our archives. And he's the author of the book, Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. Carl, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. This is the time of year where we think about families getting together for the holidays. Uh, that can be especially rough if you or another family member are estranged. And so we're, we're going to talk about that. But I'd love to know how you came to this subject. How did you come to be interested in this topic of family estrangement? You know, it's actually kind of an interesting story. Part of it was predictable and part of it wasn't. Uh, the predictable part is that through most of my career, I've been interested in what some might call the dark side of families. So I've studied things like <laughs> conflict and abuse in families, parental favoritism, things that may impair the quality, especially parent-child and sibling relationships after people become adults, so not with small children. So I was primed for that. However, I was doing a completely different study. In my first book, I was interviewing older Americans about their advice for living. And one of our questions was, how can someone get to your age and not have any regrets about life? I will say one thing that they did tell me, 
uh, was if you get to 90 or 100 and don't have any regrets, you might not have lived that full a life. But leaving that to one side, I expected big ticket items like a an affair, a shady business deal, illegal activity. I wasn't prepared for how many people identified an unresolved estrangement as a major regret or the major regret. It was especially acute with older parents who were estranged from one or more of their adult children. But people also became very emotional about their own estrangements toward their parents or their siblings or grandchildren. And that then got me started in thinking about this. And I went to the literature and I was stunned to find how little research had been done on this topic. We didn't even know how much there was even though it seems like an enormous problem that affects millions of people and has very damaging effects, nobody had done much research on it. Like, so that was, um, you know, red meat to a hungry dog, so to speak, if you're an academic. And I developed this um, six or seven year project around understanding estrangement. We talk on the show, as you know, mostly about financial planning topics and your research, your study, found that one of the root causes of family estrangement is money, its inheritance, its other financial issues. What'd you learn? You know, we often think of estrangements as coming from these, always from these longstanding family problems like child abuse or substance abuse. But we found that a surprising number of estrangements occur from situational factors, from really problematic conflicts in families that slowly descend from conflict into contempt and then to stonewalling, where people cut others off. Money may not be the root of all evil, but it certainly is the root of a lot of family estrangements. Part of it is that the equation of distribution of resources with love or with the importance of a child to a parent. Another key issue is that it's very difficult, even if one wants to distribute one's wealth equally, to do so if there is an art collection, if there is a family summer house, where the only way you can distribute things equally is to liquidate everything and divide the money. Some kids don't want to do that. So one key flashpoint was over wills and inheritance, especially when parents or grandparents were not open about their intentions, where it was a surprise and where there were expectations that weren't met. Very similarly, a clear factor in a number of estrangements were family businesses, uh, the transfer of a family business to children. It's basically a situation where it's a zero-sum game, where you can't divide everything in a way that everyone is going to be happy. And the way wealth is distributed becomes a highly charged affair. So it was uh, really striking how often issues of wealth, wealth management, wealth distribution entered into at least temporary families' estrangements and sometimes very longstanding ones. So taking in all of this information, what advice do you have for people who are approaching their own families and their own estates and who want to avoid an estrangement either while they're still living or after they die? That's a really great question. And actually, there are some important things that, that people can do. And let me say, to make this clear, one factor in the study, I interviewed around 200 people who were in existing estrangements. 
But I really felt that in order to understand the issue, I also needed to interview people who had reconciled. So I was able to create a, the largest study ever done of people who've reconciled after long estrangements of around 100 people. So we have both those perspectives of what it's like to be in it and then what people did. And one of the things that people who resolved estrangements or who avoided them did, and I hope it doesn't sound like a cliche, but really is openness. That around wealth and money, these kinds of family secrets can be very poisonous. Uh, I have a number of examples in my book of cases where a child was being cut out of the family business, everyone else knew and that child didn't know it. There was no chance for him or her to negotiate or deal with it. Uh, also, a strong recommendation that I would really recommend to your listeners, and it's possible that some of the folks in your business can help with this. Over and over with people who had become estranged for financial reasons, when I asked them what would solve their problem, they said, a time machine. And by that, they meant if they could go back and bring in a professional mediator. Many mm -hmm. people felt that a mediator who could deal specifically with the money, wealth, inheritance issues, with four kids, happened more frequently than you would think, inherit a house, and three want to sell, and one doesn't. Over and over they said that rather than a 10-year estrangement, I wish we had gone to our local mediation resources and brought somebody in. So the key factor that many people either used and they were successful or wish they had, but was an impartial outside person who had all of the family's interests at heart. So I would recommend that as, as one of the strongest recommendations from the research. Families can't necessarily do this on their own. And if an estrangement is brewing, if, if some people are starting to say, I'm never going to speak to you or, you know, hear from you again, that's the time to bring in somebody. And it doesn't need to be a family therapist. It can be somebody who's specifically able to deal with the financial conflict that really helps. I also think, and, and this is just a product of reporting that I've done on stories through the years, that it's important not to let it fester, right? Mm -hmm. That dealing with things at the time in which they're happening sounds like, well, of course, but in many cases, families let things just brew for years without dealing with them. Absolutely. People have talked about this in marriages, and I applied it to estrangements. Uh, there really is a cascade where there's an initial disagreement, family starts to take sides, there are conflicts and arguments, those aren't resolved. And the danger point is when it moves into what, what some have called contempt, where you're no longer interested in solving the problem, you become interested in damaging the other person. I noted that cascade uh, in these situations, it was very clear in a number of them. So you're absolutely right, I argue for a kind of first aid that it is very important shortly after events or conflicts occur to deal with them. One way to look at that, and it surprises some people, but in many of the estrangements, and actually this probably meshes with listeners' experiences if they've been estranged or know somebody who has, there's a single event, I call it in the book a volcanic event, where everybody can point to when brother John screamed out invectives and curse words, slammed the door and said, I'm never talking to any of you again. Like everybody remembers that. And people do talk about these relational turning points. It's very similar to if you've loved a restaurant, gone to it for years. You have a bad meal 
And all your memories about that restaurant change. You know, you think about all the other times maybe you were sick. People can take these signature events about money, for example, and recast the whole relationship. And what happens if they don't deal with it right away, it becomes cast in stone. Uh, so there, there is, is no question if there's a serious fight, uh, a serious difficulty, things are escalating. This kind of first aid is something that many, many people, again, wish they had done. Because so when these things get set, estrangements, they really take on a life of their own. And as each year goes by, it's harder and harder to resolve them, even if the problem's been resolved. Of all of your findings in doing this research and this study in particular, what surprised you the most? There were several surprising findings. Let me tell you two that I think are important. One of the most striking was how prevalent estrangement is. So in addition to doing very in-depth, qualitative, rich interviews, I also was able to do a nationally representative survey of the U.S. population. And it was right before the pandemic hit, so it wasn't affected by the pandemic factors. And we found in that study that approximately 27% of people answer yes to a very loaded question, which is, is there someone in your family from whom you are estranged? That is, you have no contact with them at all at the present time. And we found that around 27% of people answer yes to this. Uh, this could be parents, wow. children, siblings. So that was one really surprising thing that uh, this isn't just a media hyped issue. It's a very widespread issue of people at least moving in and out of estrangements at a very high rate. Around 10% of those are parents and children. And siblings were actually some of the biggest groups. And the sibling estrangements occur around exactly what we're talking about. Money, wills, who's going to care for mom and dad. So I'd say that was one surprise. Um, second was in the area of reconciliation. And let me say first, I'm not recommending that people reconcile. It's a highly individual decision. There certainly are people who've had such adverse childhoods, adverse family lives, abuse in particular, where even if things are better as adults, they simply can't psychologically or physically have the person in their life. And they shouldn't feel guilty. They shouldn't feel stigmatized. Of people who weren't in those extreme situations, one of the most the remarkable findings was how positive people felt the experience of reconciliation was. Not because of the, the restored relationship was perfect, which it often wasn't, but what happened to them in terms of their own personal growth. Working through all the issues around reconciling after 10 or 20 years was an engine for personal growth. People said it was a little bit like training for a marathon or learning a foreign language. You know, you have ups and downs, uh, but it was challenging and difficult, but they felt a weight off their shoulders. They felt a reduction in guilt. They felt a big reduction in anticipatory regret. What if I don't get in touch with this person? So I was very surprised to hear how many of the reconcilers in my study found it to be a good thing, not just to be back in the family, but that the very process was so beneficial for them uh, in terms of their own personal growth. I will say that many, if not most, did this with the help of a psychotherapist or some kind of a counselor, and I would certainly recommend that. So I think we have, uh, on the one hand, there are some people who can't and shouldn't reconcile. On the other hand, for those who feel they can, 
it turns out to be a positive event in their lives. Such amazing information, Dr. Carl Pilmer. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure and glad to come back sometime. We'll be happy to have you. I also want to thank Andy Smith for being here with us today. If you've got questions about estate planning and how it can help facilitate the generational wealth transfer that you are looking for, you can give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call. Talk with one of the planners like Andy. They can help you make the best decisions for you and for your family. And be sure to subscribe to Everyday Wealth wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or visit us at everydaywealth.com where all of our episodes are available to you. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.